Uh, turn with me to your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1, and um, we're just going to read from the, v- the first couple of verses, but don't be, we're not going to spend 30, 30 minutes looking at two verses. Um, uh, it's going to be an overview of the book, okay? So, um, but we'll read the first two verses just to set a little bit of the theme, and then, and then of course, uh, uh, you, it'd be helpful you have a Bible open, because I'll quote from other parts of the book to give us an overview. When, when we're studying the Bible, it's often useful when we come to a first book to get a sense of, roughly speaking, what it's about before we dive into the details. It really helps. It's like, what's the big picture? What's this book about? And then, and then we'll go through it. So the, the, the aim uh, this morning is to give you the big picture. So Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, let's hear God's word uh, from, uh, from the book of Ephesians, and I'll read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. As I say, it's uh, it just the, the first couple of verses there, in some ways quite a standard introduction. The Apostle Paul uses a number of his different books. Um, in the ancient world, it was common to have greetings to you, and the Apostle Paul shifts this around in his own uh, hallmark, branded kind of way to emphasize grace. Instead of saying greetings to you, he says grace to you. A bit like if you got an email today, and the of someone saying, dear and then your name, they had perhaps something like, endeared to God, and then your name. So grace to you, it's, it's part of his emphasis. But he uses it in a number of different places. It's his common uh, way that he introduces his letters. Now, as I say, this morning is an overview of the whole, of the whole book. And what I want to show you uh, as I now introduce uh, the series and introduce this sermon is that is this book... Paul's letter to the Ephesians is not only timely, not only timeless, which of course it is, it's God's word, that's what we believe here at College Church, but it's also a timely word. It's a word in season. It has particular relevance to our culture, to the church in the world today. And and what's drawn me to studying the book of Ephesians is that I believe it has a particularly powerful word uh, not just to us as a church, so that's for sure the primary thing, but also to the culture around in which we live, as a prophetic word to the culture around in which we live, uh, to those who are trying to find their way um, to um, truth in our highly confused cultural age with all sorts of different opinions about morality. Essentially, our culture has lost its morale because it's lost its morality, and it's lost its morality because it's forgotten what the Apostle Paul is going to be teaching us here, which is uh, all about the heavenly places. So I want to, I want to introduce this theme of the, the timelessness and the timeliness as well, that it's both uh, a word for all time and it has a particularly, I believe, powerful word for us today as God's people. And if you're not yet a Christian, I pr- I'm praying as I preach and as I was praying this week that your eyes will be open to see the truth of, of, of God as well by his Spirit as we go through this, uh, this passage, um, uh, this book, this morning. It's both a timely and, uh, and uh, timeless uh, word. And to do that, I want to uh, begin with a little illustration from Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, of course, is the, the architect of Apple's, the Apple computer company's massive growth. And Steve Jobs was a brilliant marketer. 
And when he was doing his marketing, he always had a story that he was behind, whether it was the commercial or when he was on the platform selling a new product. Um, There was always a story that was in it. And in his story, um, if you, and there have been books that analyzed um, how he did it, there was always a hero in the story. And of course, surprise, surprise, the hero was Apple. (laughs) But there was also always an enemy. Implicit. Sometimes he called it out explicitly. Most famously, uh, commercial that they did right at the, towards the beginning of Apple's massive surge in popularity under his leadership. Uh, they did a commercial which was playing off um, uh, the 1984 book of George Orwell, Big Brother, and uh, this this Big Brother, this dictator figure, and and and. and Pretty explicitly, he associated Big Brother with his, uh, his computer rival, IBM. They were Big Brother. And, of course, Apple was the hero, and, and he actually had someone uh, sort of run into the, 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 um, in the commercial, run in and, and with a massive hammer, break down the, the, the screen showing Big Brother and revealing the, 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 more, the more vibrant, uh, bright uh, colors of Apple. And all, all, so it, sometimes he was very explicit. Big Brother equals IBM. <laughs> Not too subtle. Um, but always implicitly there was... An enemy, a big brother, if you like. Well, here, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, implicitly, and sometimes explicitly, uh, there's a, if you like, a big brother, though in a sense, it was a big sister. Uh, For, if you you read through and if you want to follow us in this series, as I hope you do as we go through the book of Ephesians, if you read through Uh, Luke's account of Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, you'll come across this, this big sister, namely the goddess Artemis. Artemis' temple was right next to Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Massive. Can't really think about Paul's ministry in Ephesus without having this big brother, this big sister in your mind as, as the spiritual enemy. Artemis was hugely influential. In fact, when revival came, and we're going to think about revival a little bit uh, towards the end of the message this morning. When revival came to uh, Ephesus, one of the signs of revival was an economic change. People were uh, shift. People were buying less statues of Artemis, and therefore the statue makers caused an uproar, complaining that their, their money was being taken away from them by this apostle Paul as he preached the gospel. And they sang, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Big sister is watching over you. Now that statue was an unusual one. You, you, can, you can look, Google it and find out the statue that was, we, we've, we've dug them up. We know what the statues looked like. The statue had uh, uh, multiple strange looking um, receptacles all across the body, which has been lots of lots of conversation about what they meant. Almost certainly, they were somehow connected with magic, which was another huge thing that was going on in Ephesus. Magic, and again in Luke's description of Paul's ministry there, um, the sons of Sceva, as they were known. 
attempted through magical incantation to use uh, Paul's uh, growing authority for their magical power. And when they were overthrown and made to look ridiculous, many, many repented of their magical works. And there was a huge burning of magical incantations and books. Uh, it, it was said to uh, have, have, would have cost 50,000 uh, silver coins, a huge amount of money. And we know, one scholar says, that Ephesus was known as the metropolis of magic. And Artemis and magic were connected. So in, in Ephesus, there was this spiritual power, heavenly power, that dominated you. And the Christians have been rescued from that. But now, uh, some time has, has gone. It's about A.D. 62 or so. Most scholars think that Paul is writing his letter to the Ephesians from when he was in jail in Rome, probably towards the end of that time, his first captivity there, about A.D. 62 or so. And it's about seven years that have, that have gone by since Paul planted the church in Ephesus. When he planted the church in Ephesus, he didn't just plant uh, like a little local church. He had lectures in a public space. Something I thought we need to get back into doing sometimes. He had lectures in the hall of Tyrannus, public space, about Jesus every day. And people came and the word of God went, we're told, throughout the whole province of Asia. And churches were planted all over the place. And there was a network of churches, in essence. And that's why in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 to 3, the first church of the seven churches of Asia, this province of Asia, was Ephesus, because then the other six churches were influenced by the work that took place through God's work, God's work through the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. And now there's this network of churches, some of whom had met the Apostle Paul personally, but others hadn't, which is why as we go through the letter, you'll sometimes come across him realizing that he's writing to people not all who would have met him because there are churches throughout this network through his ministry, the Hall of Tyrannus. Seven years have passed, and uh, this uh, context there, there isn't like a hugely obvious context in the book of Ephesus, uh, as there is in Paul's letter to the Colossians, where there's, a, uh, there's an obvious heresy that he's speaking against. In the letter to Ephesus, it's upper level, uh, Chris Austin, the ancient Greek teacher, said it was sublime in tone, which was an interesting word choice because the Greek word sublime could also be translated difficult, <laughs> which is also true about Paul's letter to the Ephesians, partly because it has massively long sentences. In Greek, it's about the same length as his letter to the Galatians, but it has half the number of sentences. It's complicated, sublime, difficult. In fact, Erasmus, the Renaissance scholar, uh, when he was talking about how at the end of Second Peter, the Apostle Peter says of Paul's writings that some of them are difficult and hard to understand, Erasmus thought Peter was speaking specifically about his letter to the Ephesians. And yet, though it is, it is sublime, uh, 
transcendent, elevated. It is also actually clear. In this context with big sister all around and the power of magic and the pluralistic society with many different gods, not just big sister, Artemis, but also the cult to the emperor, uh, Caesar, with that political power, with these Christian people who had watched the apostle Paul be persecuted while he was there And now he's in jail. They needed to be reminded of the the true heavenly power that they had in the gospel and be encouraged. I think that's what the Apostle Paul was saying here. In summary, what his his message in in the book of Ephesians is all about these heavenly places, not meaning the the place you go when you die if you're a Christian, heaven, but the, the unseen spiritual realm. And what he's saying is be encouraged. God has heavenly power. Or to put it in a longer form, he's saying, he, he, he's writing to show us how God's purpose in Christ in the heavenly places encourages the church with spiritual power to walk in light and to speak the truth in love as one united body. Let me show you how he teaches us. It's really, it it is the most amazing piece of writing and it has so much spiritual power in it. So first of all, the theme, the heavenly places. Let me show you how this is emphasized again and again and again. One of the ways to know what a book in the Bible is about is by repetition. Paul, uh, people have said how complicated the book of Ephesians is, but its basic theme is really clear once you begin to see it. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he begins by saying, Blessed be God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you're a Christian, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in this realm, this heavenly realm. And then he returns this theme again towards the end of the chapter when he's this remarkable prayer that we'll look at a bit later in the series together. Look at verse, verse 20 and then in context right beforehand. He he's, he's wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So who, Artemis does not have the power. God has the power. Where? Verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the, where? Heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Far above Caesar. Far above the global political elite today too. And then he emphasizes the same thing again in uh, verse 6 of chapter 2. 
this famous passage uh, that the children are going to be memorizing, and I hope we memorize along with them, verses 1 to 10, the wonderful summary of the gospel. But look how he puts it here in the context, and specifically in Ephesians, to emphasize his, his main theme. So verse 6, he's, beforehand he's just said uh, that God, who's rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, if you're a Christian, you are loved with a great love. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. To emphasize the love of God is not to downplay the fact that we are sinners. To know that you are truly loved as a Christian, you need to upplay that you're a sinner. And then marvel that God nonetheless loves you with a great love. You're loved with a great love. By grace you've been saved, that standard theme of the Apostle Paul's grace, which he begins the letter, grace to you. And then verse 6, he emphasizes the theme again, the heavenly places, and raises up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're seated in the heavenly realm. If you're a Christian, you are in the heavenlies. Uh, you're connected by Jesus through his spirit into the heavenly realm. You have access to heavenly power. When I think of this text, I like to think of a a story of a a Cambridge professor. He was a a real godly Christian man, and he was also something of an evangelist. He was uh, quite a high-ranking professor at the time, and he would go and preach in the marketplace in the, in the city of Cambridge, outside. And uh, one time as he was preaching, the story goes that he started to be heckled. He was a very uh, um, sort of typical Cambridge professor type. I mean, quite sort of proper, I suppose. You know. And so he's, he's preaching outside, and the guy starts to heckle him. He, he's preaching about how if you believe in Jesus, when you die, you go to heaven. And the guy says, how do you know where you're going to die, that you're going to go to heaven? You haven't been there. How on earth would you know? You, you don't know what's going to happen after you die. And this Cambridge professor, who by all accounts was a rather affectionate man, looked at his heckler and said, my dear fellow, I live in heaven. Seated in the heavenly places. Your place in heaven after you die, if you're a real Christian, is secure because, in a sense, you're already seated there. Your place is booked. You're in the heavenly places. You have spiritual power. He raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm, in Christ Jesus. He uh, emphasizes uh, the same uh, thing in in chapter 3 when he's um, uh, uh, talking about uh, the the unity. Uh, Again, talk about an important cultural theme today. How do different races, uh, Gentiles, all the nations that means, Jews and Gentiles, all nations, how are they going to get along? What is the source for our racial tensions in our world today? And Paul talks about how the, the, the solution to that is, uh, is the gospel. Uh, he has uh, broken down the dividing wall of hostility and he's united us in Christ. We, we 
are in him and therefore one. And, but then look at the theme of how he emphasizes it. Verse, verse 10 of chapter 3. So that through church the manifold wisdom of God, in particular the context, the wisdom of God to bring together Jews and Gentiles, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities where? In the heavenly places. God's purpose in Christ in the heavenly places gives us great power, spiritual power. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus and Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence to our, for our faith in him. The heavenly places. Uh, he, he talks about that same theme of, of heaven and the heavenly places as the spiritual realm that we are now in in Christ in different ways. Uh, and I'm just emphasizing uh, the, the, a few of the most obvious in the passage but in, in the book. But for instance, verse, verse 10 of chapter 1, he also says to unite all things in him, things in heaven and uh, uh, things on earth. Or uh, chapter 3, verse 14, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. But these heavenly, or chapter 4, he is descended, he who, de- verse 10, he who de- descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. These heavenly places. But then, that specific word translated heavenly places or heavenlies, he comes back to again in, uh, at the end of the book, chapter 6 and verse uh, 12. Where he's talking about the armor of God and uh, the spiritual battle that we're in. Uh, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Christian, you don't need to be frightened. You're in the heavenly places. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Why? Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Ultimately, our wrestling is not against people. The physical world. It's a spiritual battle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. God's purpose in Christ in the heavenly places encourages us. So the theme is heavenly places. The aim is encouragement. If we really understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here about the heavenly places, if we grasp it as a church, then the result would be encouragement, not feeling so sad, not feeling so depressed, not feeling so discouraged, but encouraged. That's his aim. You can see it at the end of the book. Uh, chapter 6, verse 21, where he's talking about Tychicus. Tychicus, uh, the, the, uh, Ephesians, Colossians of Philemon probably belonged together as a, a set of books that he was writing at the time. And Tychicus, he asked to take uh, a, a, the book of Ephesus with him and deliver it. And probably it was his task to read it out and probably to, to preach it to the congregation, having read it out. So he, he commends Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. And verse 22, I have sent him to you for this very purpose. So what's the aim? That you may know how we are. And we'll come back to why that 
is about encouragement too in just a moment, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Ephesians, be encouraged. Why? God has heavenly power. And that theme of encouragement is, uh, I said we pick up why that's connected to how, that they may know how we are, how the Apostle Paul is. If you come back to chapter 3, verse 13, you'll see uh, uh, Ephesus was written almost certainly from the Apostle Paul being in jail in Rome around AD 62 in his first stay in jail in Rome. And he, he doesn't make much play of him being in jail. If you and I are writing a letter from jail, we probably would have said a lot about it. He doesn't say much about it, but he does indicate why they need encouragement. So chapter 3, verse 13 So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. That is, he's in jail for the gospel, which is your glory. I ask you not to lose heart. That's his aim, that they would be encouraged and they wouldn't lose heart. They wouldn't give up. They wouldn't stop loving their wife. They wouldn't stop loving their husband. They wouldn't stop shepherding their children. They wouldn't stop leading their Bible study group. They wouldn't stop forgiving those who have sinned against them as they have been forgiven in Christ. They wouldn't stop telling their friends about Jesus, even though perhaps they haven't yet said yes to Jesus. They wouldn't stop trying to do mission work. They wouldn't stop being present at the prayer meeting and praying for the persecuted church on Friday lunchtime. They wouldn't stop... They wouldn't lose heart. They'd be encouraged. Why? God has heavenly power. You, Christian, you, church people, are at the very center of God's purpose. And Artemis and the magical and all the different gods and all the different ideologies, that's not where the power is. The power is in Christ, for he has won the victory in the heavenly places. And if we are encouraged, as I say, if we really grasp this book, the the end result will be encouragement, not losing heart. As we go through it, I hope it does that for us. It lifts us. It encourages us. If we are encouraged, then it will shift how we think and how we act. And Paul talks about that too. Verse uh, 17 of chapter 4, he says this, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In other words, don't copy the latest fashionable thinking from, from the Gentile elite ideas. Don't walk in the futility of the mind of pagan Caesar or of magical Artemis. Don't copy the futility of that way of thinking. Think biblically. No longer walk as the Gentiles do, which means our minds. We're no longer thinking the real power. Oh, yes, I'm a Christian, but if I really want to understand things, I've got to use some other set of jargon or ideas or philosophy or whatever it is. No, the real insight is in Christ. Which doesn't mean we don't read other books. I've read plenty of books that are not written by Christians. I'll continue to do so. But I don't want to have the futility 
of a non-Christian mind. I want the, I want to love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. So if we're encouraged, it will shift how we think, but also shift how we behave. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. Uh, I think he's probably quoting from a well-known, we've just sung uh, a song that was written um, by one of our uh, church plant pastors, and um, the music uh, composed by our worship pastor, Pastor Eric Dewar. It's a song that we're going to be learning and singing together, and they probably had songs like this too. And if you look at uh, chapter 5, verse 14, he's probably, we don't know for sure, but he's probably quoting from a song that they would have known. He's, he's trying to encourage them, remind them of this truth. He says, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So if we're encouraged, it will shift how we think, and we'll wake up. We won't be somnolent and, and lazy and going with the flow. We'll be active, energetic, Why? Because we serve a living Lord who rose from the dead. Awake, O sleeper. That's all part of being encouraged. Not losing heart. Not having the futility of a Gentile mind, a uh, non-unbelieving mind. And having something to live for, a purpose. Be encouraged. God has heavenly power. He's writing to show us how God's purpose in Christ, in the heavenly places, encourages the church with spiritual power to walk in light and speak the truth in love. We haven't talked about speaking the truth in love. That's, that's all of that in chapter 4. Chapters 1 to 3 are more doctrinal. In chapter 4 and on is more practical. Those practical stuff all the way through. And in chapter 4 he speaks a lot about speaking the truth in love. And we'll do that when we get to it. So that's his theme, heavenly places. And the aim, the goal is encouragement. Be encouraged. Now, so what does that, what does that mean for us this morning? So I say there's going to be lots of practical application as we go through uh, the letter to the Ephesians. But what about for now, this morning? I mentioned we were going to think a little bit about revival today. Spiritual power. I occasionally get asked to appear on radio. Some of you know that I have a, a media broadcast. That my, my sermons go out through um, podcast and on radio as well, which means that occasionally someone asks me to appear on their radio program and answer some questions about some theme, and and usually they'll ask me what you'd like to talk about if I if I'm going to say yes to it, which I don't always do, but if I do, uh, they ask me what you'd like to talk about, and my answer is typically something like I'd like to talk about Jesus. Um, but uh, this time the the particular program is airing down in Florida, I think. Um, I had to get up at some very early hour to do their drive-through program. Um, they wanted to talk about revival. And I was like, okay, sure. 
And so the first question in this live program is, what do, you, what do you think about Asbury? Of course, there's been revival uh, stories coming out of Asbury and other places like that in recent days. And so, so what do you think about Asbury? I said, well, I'll tell you what. First of all, I know nothing. I haven't been there. I don't know anyone from Asbury. I don't know. So you ask me what I think about Asbury. The answer is, I don't think much. I don't know. But if you ask me what I think about revival in general, then I'll tell you. And then I gave them my standard thing about revival. And right at the heart of revival is ensuring, if you can, that if God's Spirit is powerfully at work, doing all you can to ensure that the Bible is at the heart of it. And that will do its best to keep that revival healthy. One forgotten revival took place in 1921. It was the last revival that, that happened in the, in the British Isles. It, was, uh, it, it took place in East Anglia and then spread up to northeast Scotland. It was a time of great economic depression. After the First World War, there had been promised to the country that it would be a home fit for heroes, and yet people didn't have jobs And it was a a time of darkness in the country and in the church. And one man called John Clifford, at the time he was famous, he had been a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. So he must have been fairly ancient by then, I suppose. He said, the only hope for the church today is a revival of primitive preaching of the gospel. By primitive, it's, it's a 1920s term. He didn't mean out of date, what he meant was the original Bible preaching. A little village called Lowestoft asked uh, a man called Douglas Brown to come and preach for them. He didn't want to go. He was quite happy where he was. But he sensed that God was calling him and he went and revival broke out. Many were converted. Lives were changed. There was a movement of God's spirit. Those who described it said um, that when he was preaching, it felt as if God was speaking to them. You had that experience? Something occurs to you on Wednesday that no one knows but you. And then you come to church and there's a song that repeats that phrase that you said to yourself and turns it to God. People sometimes come up to me and say, did you know that I was going? I have no idea. But God does. And he has power in the heavenly places. And he has loved you with a great love. The other thing they said about um, Douglas Brown's preaching was that it was apostolic preaching, which is what they meant was from the Bible, with one contemporary account says, thank God, apostolic results. Hmm. So as we... uh, 
look around at our culture and the churches in this country and all the rest. We have, we have global political crises and, and powerful elites and, and, and this religious idea and this non-religious atheistic idea dominating and being powerful. Here we are in church around God's word. And what do we learn? God has heavenly power. And it's in his church that his manifold wisdom is revealed. If we are in Christ, therefore, be encouraged. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we do thank you for your word and we pray that uh, as we go through this series and today, Lord, we would be encouraged that you have heavenly power. We pray, Lord, that um, this week as we go to our families and our homes, we will carry with us this, um, this message of Ephesians, that you have heavenly power and therefore we, are, we can be encouraged. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.